Today's scripture reading comes from James chapter 1, um, starting in verse 19, 19 through 27. James 1, 19. We'll be reading from the NIV, but feel free to track along. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry, because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves, and their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. This is the word of the Lord. And everybody. Uh, good to be with you. My name is Steve, and uh, I'm the associate pastor here. Uh, before we get into this passage in James that Hewan just read for us, uh, a real quick update. Uh, many of you know <coughs> that Jane, our, uh, our worship director, uh, is out on medical leave right now. Uh, she has cancer, and uh, this week she actually started uh, chemotherapy, which is a step in, in the right direction, but also comes with its own new set of challenges. So just want to give you a, a quick update there, um, urge you to continue praying for our sister Jane, and then also want to invite you uh, on Thursday nights, we're having a prayer hour for her every Thursday over here in the chapel. And so if you are uh, available to be a part of that, um, we'd love to have you come and join us uh, as we pray for Jane um, as often as we, as we possibly can. All right, so let's begin with a word of prayer, and then we will jump in here to, uh, to the book of James. Heavenly Father, we continue to come before you brokenhearted over our sister Jane. Uh, we continue to bring her before you to ask for healing and for a miracle. Um, we ask now that uh, as, as she's in the process of treatment, that you would use that treatment and the doctor's to begin healing her body. And God, we do pray that you would bring her back to us uh, strong and in full health and uh, with a story to tell of how you've been at work in her life. Now, God, we, uh, as we turn our attention to your word, we turn our attention this morning to some challenging statements from the book of James as we continue to think about uh, what it means to be a disciple. Would you, uh, would you use this to push us and to... Uh, speak to our hearts in a new and fresh way this morning, God. Um, may we be receptive to the challenge that you have before us and courageous enough to respond uh, in the way that we need to today. We pray all of this in Jesus' strong name. And everyone said, amen. All right, uh, we're going to take a little bit of a turn here, a, a, a lighter note to get us started anyway. We're going to play a little game. 
And this game is called Who Said This? So what I'm going to do is I'm going to show you a quote, and I want you to, is there one already up there? No? Okay, good. I'm going to show you a quote, and I want you to just think through, okay, who may have said this? And, and if you want to, I don't want anybody shouting out answers, okay? We're not going to, we're not going to do that. But if you want to, you know, kind of elbow the person next to you and say, oh, I know who this is and, and share that, you can do that as well, okay? So a couple different quotes. We're going to start with this one. Real integrity is doing the right thing, knowing that nobody's going to know whether you did it or not, okay? Real integrity is doing the right thing, knowing that nobody's going to know whether you did it or not. Take a moment, think about who that may have been, make a guess perhaps with the person next to you. And I will now reveal to you that this comes from the great Oprah. <laughs> All right? This is how this game is going to go. A couple more of these. The next quote is this. <clears throat> the strength of a nation derives from the integrity of the home. Okay, the strength of a nation derives from the integrity of the home. Take a moment. Think about who that may have been. Make a guess. This comes from Confucius. Surprise. <laughs> okay, the last one. The last one. The greatness of a man is not in how much wealth he acquires, but in his integrity and his ability to affect those around him positively. All right, take a minute. Think about this one. Who might this have been? All right, this is Bob Marley. I know you all had that one. <laughs> all right. Just a fun little game to get us going this morning. The theme of these quotes should be pretty obvious to us, right? The theme is integrity. And integrity is a, a, a word, it's an idea that gets talked about a lot, and yet I, I think it's also a word and an idea that's lost a lot of meaning, right, in our culture these days. We tend to care more about authenticity than we do about integrity. We express this by saying things like, uh, uh, live your truth, express yourself. And then my favorite one is this one, just do you. Okay, I don't know what that means. But I hear people say it a lot. <laughs> All right, we care more about authenticity than we do about integrity. And my guess is that as we were reading through those quotes, as we were thinking about who may have said them, a part of you may have been thinking like, oh, how nice, how quaint. Too bad we don't care about that anymore. That seems like a really nice thing to say. Now when we hear the word integrity, our immediate sort of thought about it, I think in terms of a definition, uh, we tend to gravitate towards the first definition in the dictionary, which is having to do with being a good person or a moral person. Someone with integrity has morals, has values, and strives to live by them. But it's the second definition that I want us to pay a little bit more attention to this morning. According to Webster, the other definition of integrity is the state of being whole and undivided. Integrity is the state of being whole and undivided. Integrity as wholeness, maybe a good way of thinking of it is this. It is having a strong center around which all the pieces fit and hold together. Now we're in this ongoing conversation about discipleship, about what it means to be a follower of Jesus, to obey his command, to go and make disciples. And today we turn our attention to the book of James. 
uh, a little letter in the New Testament that has, in some circles, gotten a bad reputation. It's been a, a thorn in the side of some theologians for a while. In fact, the reformer Martin Luther wanted to just rip it out of the Bible because he felt like it contradicted his doctrine of salvation by faith alone. So there's, there's an aspect of James that sort of messes with us a little bit. But the argument that he's making all throughout this letter related to this idea of integrity is that as disciples of Jesus, we are to be whole. We are to be wholehearted. Not just people who are well-behaved or who exhibit better behavior, but people who actually live what Jesus said. People who take seriously Jesus' command to love God with their whole being, their heart, soul, mind, and strength. People who love their neighbors as themselves. People who live like Jesus actually overcame sin and death. Now this letter is written to a persecuted, scattered, we might even say refugee church. You can see this in the first couple of verses in, the, in, the, in chapter 1 as the letter opens. So James is, is not writing uh, some, uh, a work of theory or uh, just some intellectual ideas. This is a very practical uh, letter written to people who are in a very difficult situation. The letter is a manifesto. It's a call to action and it has volumes to teach us about what it means, what it looks like to be a wholehearted disciple of Jesus. So let's jump right in. We're beginning, uh, just looking at a little section of James today, beginning in verse 19, where James says, <clears throat> My dear brothers and sisters, my dear brothers and sisters, let's pause here for just a moment. James does have this reputation as being kind of a, a grumpy, angry guy. <laughs> but he begins from this place of love, my dear, as some translations say, my beloved brothers and sisters. And all throughout this letter, he uses this phrase over and over again, my dear brothers, my dear sisters, because there, he does have this tremendous level of love and affection and care for his brothers and sisters who have been afflicted. And so while he does have some pointed, very direct things to say, this is a loving call to be wholehearted people even in the face of extremely trying circumstances. So my dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so, preval so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. So he begins with this formulation. Quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. Now this quick to listen thing is, is sort of a funny thing to say, right? Hurry up and stop talking. I say this to my children regularly <laughs> but this is very countercultural. in our cultural we are quick to speak we do not miss an opportunity to throw our two cents in to say something to react to something to take a stand for something but James says be slow to speak quick to listen and then slow to become angry and when you think about it these things they all they, they go together right you cannot be quick to listen 
and quick to speak. I don't know if you've ever been in a conversation with someone and, and you're talking, sharing something, and you realize that the person that you're talking to is not listening to you at all, right? They're waiting for the pause. The pause where they can jump right in and redirect the conversation back to whatever it is that they want to talk about. How many of you have had this experience? Okay, oh, some of you, good. Let me give you a scripture. Do you see someone who speaks in haste? There's more hope for a fool than for them. You can use that next time when you sense someone's trying to cut in on what you're saying. (laughs) When we are quick to listen and slow to speak, it tends to make it harder to be quick to anger. And this is important to remember in our day-to-day lives. When our, our boss says something insensitive, when our spouse pushes one of our buttons, when uh, your roommate is being a jerk, when your kids are driving you nuts, when you see something on the news and you just want to tweet about it so bad. Slow to speak, quick to listen, slower to anger. Now, I especially want to push on this quick to listen piece for those of us who come from a more privileged background who now occupy a place of privilege within the world it is all the more important that we be quick to listen and slow to speak and in fact our role in God's mission our role in helping this mission of God move forward may have far more to do with how we listen than with anything we have to say let me say that one more time our role in God's mission may have far more to do with how we listen than with anything we have to say. James then then says something that I think is very controversial to our generation today. He says, human anger does not produce righteousness. Human anger does not produce righteousness. But what about the prophets speaking truth to power? What about Jesus turning the tables over in the temple? To which I would say, yeah. There is a place for righteous anger. But the key word, of course, is righteous. And so James here is is making a contrast between human anger and righteous anger. And one way that we can discern the difference between those is to be slow to speak and quick to listen. And not just quick to listen to what's going on around us, but also quick to listen to our own selves. This anger that is rising up inside of me. What is this? Where is this coming from? Why am I feeling this way? Is this righteous anger or is this just anger? In Ecclesiastes, we read, Do not be quickly provoked in your spirit, for anger resides in the lap of fools. And one of the things that we see in the wisdom tradition, whether that's Ecclesiastes or Proverbs or even many of the things that James has to say to us is this. Wisdom is controlled speech. Wisdom is being in control of the words that come out of our mouth, which is the total opposite of our social media world where you just say whatever comes into your mind. But it's really hard to do the work of self-examination when our mouth is constantly running. Brian Stevenson, who's become a, a hero of mine, says this, Fear and anger are a threat to justice. 
They can infect a community, a state, or a nation and make us blind, irrational, and dangerous. Brian Stevenson is someone who, if you're not familiar with him, you should become familiar with him. He's done some amazing work in the criminal justice system, uh, working on behalf of those who have been uh, incarcerated uh, despite uh, any proof of their guilt. And he's fought a variety of other things <clears throat> as well. You can find him, uh, the Equal Justi- Justice Initiative is the organization he, he started. You can find his talks online, and I'd highly recommend his book, Just Mercy. One of the things that is compelling about him to me is that he is one of the most gentle, joyful people that you will ever hear speak or meet. And in a lot of ways, he's the living embodiment of this text in our modern world. Quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger, and yet just a ruthless advocate for justice. Now, James closes this particular section here by urging us to get rid of all filth and humbly accept the word. And this can seem a little bit incongruent with what has come before But that's kind of James' style, and it comes back to our misunderstanding of integrity. Of course, these things would go together. They sound a whole lot, actually, like the words of Jesus. In Luke 6, Jesus says, A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. And an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart, for the mouth speaks what the heart is full of the mouth speaks what the heart is full of it will come out we leak what's going on in our hearts so if we want to be wise if we want to be wise with our words if we are to speak from a good place from a good heart if we are going to stand up for the right things we need to slow down and listen so the question for us from this first part of our text this morning is this where do we need to slow down and be quick to listen and again sometimes that listening is to someone else and to their story and sometimes that listening is just to us what's going on in here where do you need to slow down and be quick to listen James continues to push us towards integrity and wholeness he says do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves do what it says This is, again, very much James' style, just like right to the point. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard but doing it, they will be blessed and what they do. Now, quick theological aside here. This is one of those uh, times in the letter where it can sound like James is saying that we could earn our salvation or we have to work to earn our salvation. This blessed in what they do. My hope this morning, my hope is that if you were to read through the whole letter of James, you would see that's not at all what he's, what he's advocating for. But he does push, he does push on the uh, what we do doesn't matter, only what we believe matters theology. Are you with me? 
And, and he pushes on that because that kind of thinking, that what we do doesn't matter, only what we believe matters, it gets us into all kinds of trouble. One way that it gets us into trouble is this. It reduces human beings to brains. And it, it treats us like computers. You know, just dump the right information in the brain, uh, upload the right operating system, and you're good to go. But human beings don't work like that. And my experience is that computers don't work like that either, but that may be more of my problem than, than anything else. Humans, we don't work like that. We are body, spirit, heart, soul, mind, and strength. We are not just the set of ideas that are floating around in our brains. We are whole beings, whole persons, and so our beliefs and our actions matter. Our minds and our hearts and our bodies matter. We are whole beings. Peter Rollins is an Irish thinker and philosopher. You have to really pay attention to this quote, so take note here. He says, our practices do not fall short of our beliefs, but are the concrete material expression of them. In other words, our outer world is not something that needs to be brought into line with our inner world, but is an expression of it. Okay, what he's saying here is this, how you live your life is what you actually believe. How you live your life is what you actually believe. A couple of examples. I can say that I value good health. But if I only eat junk food and I don't go to the doctor and I never work out, then that's not an actual lived value. What I actually believe is that it doesn't matter what I do with my body. On a more theological note, I can profess to believe in God's grace. I can sing Amazing Grace when I'm in church on Sunday morning. But if I live my life constantly trying to prove my worthiness, then my actual belief is that I need to make myself more pleasing to God. Are you with me? What we do is what we believe in tangible form. Now, one of the more haunting indictments of the American church is this phrase. I've heard it several times. I don't know exactly where it comes from, but this idea that we are educated beyond our obedience. We are educated beyond our obedience. Our problem is not with hearing the word. It's with doing it. I find this particularly haunting because this hits right to the core of who I am. I'm wired up to want more information. I'll buy one more book, read one more article, listen to one more podcast, and then I'll be ready to go. And so I have to slow myself down here and ask the question, is there something that I already know that I just need to be doing? And maybe if I, I pull back a little bit, asking the question, does my life suggest that I believe faith is just about accumulating knowledge? Or does my life suggest that faith is something that I live, something that I put into practice? So the question here from this section of our text is, what truth have you heard that you need to put into action? Maybe say it this way, what truth have you already heard? that you need to put into action. 
All right, the last two verses say this. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein, tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves. Here comes the theme of our tongues and our words and what we say again. If you do not keep a tight rein on your, on your tongue, your religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Now, in this conversation this morning, I think it's easy to poke at folks, and again, this very much includes my own self, who enjoy sitting around discussing theological ideas, but then don't actually do anything. But there's also a challenge here for those of us who have a more activist bent as well. James is pushing on us in both directions today. I was uh, first introduced to the idea, the concepts, the conversation on social justice as it relates to faith as a college student through the, the work uh, and ministry of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. And that's a perspective that has shaped me very deeply and it's been a motivating factor in much of our life and ministry. And so what I'm about to say, I just want to offer this as a, as a caveat here. What I'm about to say comes from, and this is hard for me to admit, almost 20 years of experience uh, of being within this conversation. This is not just a sort of grumpy old man soapbox moment, okay? <laughs> but what I have seen over the last two decades is that for those who care deeply about social justice, especially at the intersection of faith, there are two very common developments. And I've seen this happen over and over and over and over again. The first development is to become very angry. And there's a lot of good reasons for that, right? To sit in this conversation, to sit with people, to be with people who are suffering from incredible systemic injustice can make you angry. To see the general apathy of people in response to these things is also something that can make us very angry. It is no surprise to me that James points out anger in this particular section of the letter and all throughout the letter. Remember, he is writing, his audience is an oppressed and persecuted people. Scattered people far from home. They are fighting for righteous causes. And James knows that the line between righteous anger and just being angry is very thin. And so in our activism, we need to watch our hearts and we need to be with people. We need to have other people in our lives who can say, I think... You're just angry right now. I think this place that you are in, it's just an angry place. It is not very righteous. Out of control, anger and words discredit our witness. They do harm to the mission. And in James' words, they make our religion worthless. So the question here is how's your heart? Are you angry? Where is that anger coming from? Is that righteous anger or is it just human anger? How is your heart? Now the other development that I've seen, again, just so many times is what I would call social activism without personal righteousness. And this is where James's words, polluted by the world, at the end of this are so important. I think we really like the take care of the widows and the orphans and we skip past the don't be polluted by the world part. 
We live in an interesting moment in time where we, and when I say we, I really mean all of us, whether we're talking political spectrum within the church, outside of the church, we've settled into this very, what I would call functional pragmatism. Where as long as the, the people we look to for guidance, as long as our leaders vote the right way, promote the right policies, toe the party line, stand up for whatever our thing is, they're good, and their behavior in other areas of life doesn't matter. And again, this is a problem for the left and the right, for outside and inside the church. Functional pragmatism. And this is not just a leadership issue. There is this trend away from personal holiness, especially if I'm doing good things. I go to rallies, I sign petitions, I talk about justice, I post about stuff on my Facebook page. But then, I'm totally polluted by the world. I'm allowing the world to shape my values about everything from money to sex to time to work. But again, you are a whole being. You are a whole person and when you live a divided life when you live a split life you do damage to yourself and you do damage to the community that you are a part of you cannot pursue social justice outside of personal righteousness and you cannot pursue personal righteousness without seeking justice they go together And so James here is just ruthlessly unmasking our self-deception in just about every possible direction. So the question is uh, real simple here. Are you pursuing personal righteousness and social justice? Now, to come in for a landing here, let's talk a little bit about the widows and the orphans. In James' time... Widows and orphans were among the most vulnerable members of their society. A woman only had security through her husband. Children only had security through their families. And if they were removed from those relationships, there was very little to nothing in place to take care of them. There were no structures in place to catch them. And in all honesty, in our modern world, not a whole lot has changed. And yet we do need to ask the question, and this goes back even to our conversation from last week about engaging our creativity. We need to ask ourselves, who among us are the most vulnerable in our society? Who has the least access to resources and structures? The resources and structures needed to survive and to thrive. The words of Brian Stevenson again, I've come to believe that the true measure of our commitment to justice, the character of our society, our commitment to the rule of law, fairness, and equality cannot be measured by how we treat the rich, the powerful, the privileged, and the respected among us. The true measure of our character is how we treat the poor, the disfavored, the accused, the incarcerated, the condemned, the orphans, the widows. We are all implicated when we allow other people to be mistreated. As a church, one of our responses to James, to this call, to the words of Brian Stevenson here, is we've named the homeless and refugee communities in Oakland as two groups we want to deeply serve. 
We believe that if James were to write this letter to us today, that's who he would name here in verse 27. Now, that is not to say that those are the only two issues in our city or in our neighborhood. There's a whole bunch of things uh, that God might call you to and that we need people doing good work. And we partner with a variety of other people doing other kinds of great work throughout uh, the city and the area as well. And so... Don't feel like those are the only two things that you get to do or, or that you would need to do if you call Regen home. There's a lot of ways to express this. But as a church, organizationally, structurally, those are the two that we have named and, and uh, feel God calling us to make a deep impact in those two places. So whether it's that or, again, whether it's something else that God leads you into, in James' words, we are all to do something. We are all to do something. And so the question is, who are your widows and orphans? Who are you coming alongside of and serving in their distress? Now, we've been serving the homeless community since the beginning of this church's story. It's one of the longest-running commitments and ministries that we have at Regeneration. But it's only in the last couple of months that we've actually uh, hired staff to uh, lead this ministry forward. And so this morning we're going to get to hear a little bit from Billy Barnett, who's now been on staff for a couple of months. And there's a couple of, uh, of uh, hopes that I have for this time. One is that you just get to know Billy a little bit better. You get to hear his story, uh, where he's come from, and how God has brought their family uh, here uh, to Oakland. But I also hope that we begin to get a glimpse of where God may be leading us uh, forward in this kind of service, in this kind of action. So let's welcome Billy to the stage now. Good morning, everyone. How are you? <laughs> so this is Billy. He's taller than me, as you might be able to tell. Um, and you guys have been here since mid-February now, right? Yeah. So I just have a couple questions for you this morning. The first one is, uh, tell us a little bit about how you, uh, how you came to know Jesus, because you were not always following Jesus your whole life. So tell us a little yeah. bit about that transformational moment in your life. Yeah. Yeah, so um, I tell you, I'm quite nervous to be up here today. I feel really sick, and um, I was in the emergency room the other night with my eye. I had something in my eye, and I had to get it surgically removed, so I'm just not feeling great. So uh, bear with me. Um, so basically, my family history is um, my father's from Oakland. My mother's from Ireland. I spent about 60% of my life in Ireland and about 40% of my life here in the Bay Area. Um, I grew up in a family where addiction and mental health problems were rampant. Um, divorce took place at a really young age for me and um, my mother was an immigrant to Ireland and um, so when the divorce happened um, she really struggled to find her feet in the Bay Area and we were back and forth between Ireland and the Bay Area quite a lot um, I suppose I'm just trying to uh, recall here um, Sorry, I'm bad at dates and years and things like that. Um, I'm just trying to remember. But uh, basically, um, I think around the time I was eight or nine, we'd come back to the Bay Area. And um, I basically moved back in with my father, and then my mother was uh, gone. Um, I can't really go into the details about where she had gone right now. But um, I started to struggle. This was kind of like a shock to me. And at that age, I started to experiment with alcohol. 
and um, my father had an alcohol issue and I started to um, drink some of his, his gin. Um, from there, I um, ended up kind of making bad decisions. I was running with the wrong crowd. Again, I grew up in a home where um, my father wasn't able to look after me. Um, there were no rules. Uh, there were no consequences. I could do what I wanted. So um, that kind of uh, led to me finding cannabis weed at the age of 12 and hanging out with the wrong crowd. I dropped out of school. And then uh, at the age of 15, I discovered crystal meth. Um, and I became chronically addicted to crystal meth and alcohol. Um, I used crystal meth and alcohol on a daily basis until I was 19. And when I was 19, I went into treatment for the third time. And um, this time, I kind of really wanted it. The first two times, I didn't really want it. I was just trying to get uh, the police off my back or probation officers off my back. I wasn't really truly motivated. The third time, I really wanted it. And um, I had gone through the 12 steps in a 12-step program three times. And step 12 was a step that really just captivated me about having a spiritual experience that would change you. And uh, I really wanted to have that spiritual experience. And um, I tried everything you could think of. I was uh, tapping into Buddhism, Hinduism, everything you could think of, all the cool stuff that seemed trendy. And uh, nothing happened for me. Like, I wasn't having any of these magical moments, and I was really trying to believe in it, and, I, you know, it just it wasn't happening. So one night out of desperation, um, I was actually coming back from a 12-step meeting, and... Uh, I decided to uh, stop off at an AA meeting, and it was at the AA meeting. Um, on the way out of it, I had realized, you know, I've really got to get this right. So I went to a uh, Catholic church. It was nighttime. There was nobody there. And I just prayed a prayer. Like, I believed in God. I just, I didn't know which way was the way to God. Was it Muhammad? Was it Buddha? Was it Allah? Um, was it Jesus? I didn't know. Jesus was the last on the list because I went to Catholic school and I got a good going over by the nuns in Ireland and I didn't think those people were very nice. <laughs> um, so I went to this Catholic church as a last resort and um, I just prayed this prayer. I just said, God, I said, if Jesus is real, show me a sign. And it was at that moment that I um, had experienced uh, the Holy Spirit. I encountered the Holy Spirit. I felt the presence of God come over me, and I never felt anything like it. Um, I never took a drug in my life that felt as good as that. Um, not even heroin felt as good as that. And um, I was just, I, I thought it was going crazy. Um, so I went back night after night, um, and the same thing kept happening. God kept um, touching me in the same way. Um, so I started to believe there was something with Jesus. Um, I had come to some sort of faith, but I wasn't what you would call a Christian who went to church and had a Bible. Um, I had an encounter with Jesus in a weird way. I never met a born-again Christian in my life at that point. Um, sorry, I'm probably going too long here, am I? Okay. Um, so the next thing that happened was I ended up here at Regen, somebody had said to me, go check Regen out. It's a place that's um, easy going. They'll be interested in your story. You won't be judged. So I went, and it was a big deal for me to walk through the front door, because it, like, it was in my head, it's like, this is a Protestant church, you know? And um, coming from Catholic Ireland, like, that's like, you're loyal to the crown, and all this sort of stuff, you know? <laughs> and uh, it was a big step for me to do that. But I came in, um, I hid in the back left corner, came late and I planned to leave early and Albert approached me before I could get out the door and he said uh, what's your name where are you from 
here's my phone number. And um, something about him giving me the phone number stuck with me. And um, I was like, when I drove away, I was like, I'm not going to ring that guy. And then I thought about it. I was like, that was unusual. Maybe I should ring him. And I rang him. And when I rang him, we started to uh, meet uh, once a week. And uh, we went through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And um, Albert answered all my questions. And I was a tough convert. I found it really, really hard to believe that grace was a free gift from God. I really was stuck in this idea that uh, you needed to earn your salvation. So uh, not too long after that, you started to take the turn to giving your life away and getting involved in helping other people. So tell us a little bit in particular about what you were doing in Ireland before coming here to Oakland and some of the things that you've been a part of. Yeah. Uh, so, um, well, before I went to Ireland, I was starting to serve in a city team. At this stage, I was just on fire for the Lord, and I couldn't stop talking with the Lord to everyone I met. And I went to city team, and um, it was the first time I did a homeless outreach with anyone. And I was just watching from uh, the side, and uh, I was just totally moved by God and by the Holy Spirit when I was just watching these men and women being fed. And I felt God tell me at that moment that that was the ministry he wanted me to serve in. And that was uh, 16 years ago that day that that took place. Shortly after that, um, a chain of events took place where um, I needed to go back to Ireland. <clears throat> so I went back to Ireland and um, I was excited about sharing with my family about Jesus. And uh, I thought they were going to accept this with open arms. And I had uh, copies of Bibles and purpose-driven lives and everything for them all. And uh, they were not into it at all, you know. Um, so I ended up uh, getting a job um, as a project worker in a homeless shelter. Um, and a project worker, I don't know if you guys know what that is here, but um, basically it's like uh, you're just a support to homeless people. You have a caseload of guys and uh, you just try and support them and link them with services that they might need. Um, the place I was working was the Salvation Army, so I was free to uh, share my faith there. And um, I got to share my testimony with a lot of guys, and I got to send a lot of guys into Christian rehab programs. And some of these guys were some of the most down-and-out heroin addicts that you'd ever see. And um, you wouldn't think that there would be any hope for them. And some of these guys are my friends now, and they have uh, really good jobs. One of them um, was shot like three or four times, and he was involved in a really high-level gangland activity. And... Uh, He's working for the government now, and he has a normal life and a normal job, and he was sleeping in the streets. Like, so anything can happen, absolutely anything can happen with uh, these homeless people that we encounter and that we see around our church. Um, I later um, became part of uh, setting up a, a Christian rehab in Ireland with the group of people, because uh, there wasn't one there. We were sending them all to the UK for this, and, and that was a great success. And um, through that, I just saw um, tons and tons and tons of people regain their lives and uh, the antidote for them was Jesus encounters with Jesus just like what I had totally changed them and uh, I just had an amazing time there um, and then um, the Lord uh, pushed me into another position where I was in a strange kind of collaboration with the Christian rehab program and the government and uh, we were setting up uh, outreach uh, drop-in centers we set up three of them which covered an entire county uh, county Wicklow and um, again, uh, through that experience, a lot of people got to find Jesus, and it was really, really uh, a good experience. And then lastly, just before I came, I was managing uh, 
the Women's Rehabilitation Centre um, in Ireland. And um, again, that was a really good experience. Then last question. Tell us a little bit about how God called you back to the Bay Area and then give us maybe a minute on what you, where you sense God is leading us yeah. as a church. Yeah. Yeah, so um, it's... Gosh, there's a lot of things that happened that really felt us feel like the Lord wanted us to come back uh, this direction. Um, too many to list at the moment. Um, but I suppose one of the main things that happened was I had emailed Albert and I had no idea that there was uh, any sort of uh, position opening up at all. I was actually just looking to come and serve here and um, maybe do the internship and just press reset and uh, see what the Lord was saying. And um, apparently the night that I emailed him inquiring um, was the night that the board had made a decision about the position I'm in now. Um, I had no idea. So the timing was uncanny. And uh, so that was kind of a, a pretty uh, strong indicator. Um, and then there's just been some personal family issues with my family here, which made us feel we needed to come back uh, for that as well. Um, in relation to... Um, my vision, I'm, I'm a guy with really big vision, <laughs> um, but I'm just a normal guy. Um, I'm just a broken person that found Jesus. Um, I don't have a magic wand. Um, I have a lot of faith and I have a lot of belief in uh, the broken people that we come across in the community. But um, there's nothing I can do uh, without you guys, without the church. And um, as we know, Cross Streets and the refugee ministry are the two things that are on the radar at the moment. Um, so. I suppose I would like you guys to talk to me um, if you have any ideas for the refugees specifically. Um, Cross Streets, there's a lot of things happening. Um, if you're interested in serving in Cross Streets, we would love to have you. Um, and I suppose just uh, keep us in your prayers. And uh, a verse I'd like to just share that really is close to my heart in relation to this is uh, from Isaiah 61. 1, uh, the Spirit of the Lord, God is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor, he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and opening of the prison to those who are bound. And I just want that to be our prayer right now. So, Lord, we just pray um, that we would preach good tidings to the poor. Um, we would pray that you would heal the brokenhearted, that you would proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Amen. Amen. I give Billy a hand. <laughs> Thanks.